Board Gaming with Education, a podcast for anyone curious about how games and education mix. We explore various topics like game-based learning, gamification, and board games, and the impacts they have on learning. Here's your host, Dustin Statz. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Board Gaming with Education, where we help you consider ways to use games for learning. So we have another interview episode coming up, and I actually had the privilege of meeting Jessica in person at PAX Unplugged this past November. I had a chance to chat with her after her panel on game design resources, so it was really awesome to chat with her after her panel and really awesome to have her on the show and take that discussion a bit further. In this episode, we talk about some of her game design philosophies when she designs games for learning or designs games with a certain experience in mind. So be sure to listen in. And before we get there, I want to thank you for showing up in our Facebook community, engaging and saying hello and answering questions. We always have a weekly welcome post for new members. So if you're not in our Facebook group, be sure to join. That's game-based learning, gamification, and games and education on Facebook. Come say hi. Let us know what you do in education or what you do centered around games or game design. Also, if you have been around for a while, we would love any support you could give. There are several ways you can support our show, whether it's leaving a review for us on any of your podcasting platforms or supporting us through our Patreon. We are starting a game-based lesson library. So if you do sign up for Patreon for just $1 a month, you'll have access to all of our upcoming lesson plans. Right now, we just have one. We're just starting the library, but expect about one to come out a week. Again, you can join us on Patreon for that, patreon.com backslash BGE Games. All right, so now let's get into the conversation. Welcome to another interview episode of Board Game with Education. I am super excited to have another guest that I have had the privilege of meeting in person, and I got to listen in on her panel at PAX Unplugged, and that's Jessica Crean, and she is an immersive experience and game designer. So Jessica, before we hopped on to talk today, I did do a little bit of research and I found a fun fact about you. Um, It was something I found on one of your talks at a conference. It looked like, I'm not sure where, but there was some Arabic, Arabic, sorry, Arabic on the screen. So I think somewhere maybe in the Middle East, I'm not sure, but you are or you wanted to be a tightrope walker when you were a kid yeah i really did <laughs> yeah that talk was in saudi arabia at the, the uh, tanween creativity festival last year which is this incredible crazy 17 day creativity festival um yeah my dad gave me this book called moret on the high wire and i was obsessed with it it was about this french girl named Marette who looked like an older version of me uh, or at least how i like fancied myself that i would look when i was uh, like 10 i was probably 6 or 7 at the time and uh, she had these like beautiful white uh, button up boots and she had a neighbor who would string a string or a board across these two buildings and she learned to be a tightrope walker and i thought it was the coolest thing ever so I organized a tightrope walking club at um, at my in my first grade class, and as you might have, as you know from having watched this talk, it did not go well at all. I really I I like the I guess story you told in the talk and how you I also connected it to play, which was really cool. 
what was that connection you drew? I think you'd probably be better at explaining that than myself. Yeah, uh, I think when I was little, well, who am I getting? Even now, who I am is a person who plays in ways that involve taking certain risks or doing things that that scare me a little bit. And so in starting this tightrope walking club, we started out tightrope walking on things that were really low, like the, the curb of the playground and then the balance beam. And then we had these playground apparatuses that uh, part of them were meant to be handholds. But uh, being a risky player in, in some senses, I started wanting to climb those and, and to try and tightrope uh, walk across the, the handholds. And so I tried it one day and I hadn't gotten, oh God, I probably hadn't gotten like two feet across when my first grade teacher ran over and stopped me. Um, and I got sent to the principal's office and told off for, um, for not playing correctly, essentially, and for taking down all of the other seven-year-olds with me for basically like leading all of the other seventh grade girls astray uh, into this like dangerous hooligan gang of of like rebel players. And so I felt really, really, truly awful about it. Um, and my parents had to come to school and they had to listen to the principal say horrible things. And um, I thought I was going to get told off hardcore by them when I got home, but that really wasn't the case. It ended up uh, they really told me like they trusted and supported me and they wanted to support any way that I thought that I could play. And they really ended up doing that for me for, for my whole life. Uh, and that taught me some valuable lessons about the way that we look at play and what is, what is it to not be able to take risks in playful situations and how can that uh, sort of like hamper our growth as players and what is it like to really support people as they're learning what play means for them. Right. That's, I mean, that's super awesome. I, that's really cool that your parents are so supportive too. I think that's like very important and something that games provide is the ability to take risks. I love how your you said your principal said you weren't playing correctly. That's kind of a <laughs> Yeah. There was definitely just this idea that things had to be done a certain way. And if they weren't being done that way, if we were playing around with the idea of what was possible, then that was too far. <laughs> right, right. So you kinda learned a bit through play and what play meant by taking risks. Can you tell us about a time you've learned something through playing a game maybe? I feel like I learn about people all the time through games. Uh, also just going way back, I learned about my family dynamics through Trivial Pursuit, which is that um, my dad had to win. There was If he did not win, there was, there was hell to pay because games get so tied to our identities. And he was so, so smart. So the one time that my niece and I ended up purely by coincidence, really beating him at a game. Uh, he didn't talk to us for like a couple of days. So I think I learned that games, I learned early on that games have implications in the world. And that really stuck with me again about the, like the consequences of, of play and how we play. But if we're going for a more sort of a more traditional answer, I think it's my students who teach me the most through games. They teach me about persistence a lot because we ask them to prototype and be playtesting games so often. Um, I had students last semester in my serious games or my games for change class who made a game about Alzheimer's, uh, the experience of having Alzheimer's. And the first time they brought it in, it was so, so fun to play. And it just became clear that it was way too fun. We completely lost track of, of what we were trying to impart on the players. Um, so finding that balance and getting to getting to explore games with them is I have learned so much about the game making process and about a bunch of serious games topics 
um, there's a recycling game also that taught me what uh, what recycling can go into recycling bins in Philadelphia versus other cities. Yeah, I really learned the most through through looking at them and, and watching their research process. That's really cool. And you teach game design to university students. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I teach at Drexel University in Philadelphia and uh, CUNY City Tech in Brooklyn. What are some, I guess, other lessons you've learned from your students through teaching that course? I think I have I have learned that they are overworked <laughs> and they're being asked to do so many things in so many realms that it's hard to lend one's full creativity to anything while in school. And so part of what I've tried to do as an educator is to create some space for them to be themselves and to, to explore their own creativity and that they, they're always working in groups. And so much of so much of the contemporary world is about collaboration, but it's so hard to be a good collaborator if you don't know who you are and what you want and what your own rhythms are as an artist. So I think something that I really learned through them is how important it is to carve out space for yourself, especially when you're working often with other people, to to be your own artistic self, to be creating games or parts of games that really speak to you and be doing your own research, essentially, as a game designer. It's really awesome. I've never really thought of it that way. That's uh good perspective, I think, to have as well. So you teach game design now, and obviously you've designed some games yourself. How did you first get into game design? I got into game design. I, my background is in theater, and it was it had been in my mind for a really long time how fun it is to make theater and how it's so much more fun to make than it is to experience almost all the time. And so I kept wondering what it would be like to to create theatrical experiences that were as much fun to experience as they were to design in a rehearsal room. And so I went back to grad school sort of thinking that that would solve this question for me. It was a really experimental theater program, but it didn't. And so my last semester, we had some electives that we could take. And there was a class on the history of games that I took kind of on impulse. And that that class really completely changed my life. Um, it's was like the last piece of this puzzle of things that I had been looking for as an artist really fell into place. And the whole world opened up to me about what would be, what is possible in terms of interactivity and story and um, creating weirdnesses. So I give a lot of credit to my professor for that class, Adam Nash. Uh, he could have laughed me out of the room and he didn't. We had to create two games in that class and both of the games that I created were weird <laughs> and um, sort of borderline theater game which makes sense for my background, but was very, very different than the things that other people in class were making. And it sort of came up immediately like, well, is this a game? Should we consider this to be a game? And for him, it was no question. Uh, it was like, yes, of course it's a game and we're going to consider these games as games. And that made me feel really encouraged. And I think that in anyone else's hands or in someone else's hands, they could have said, Jessica, you have to make things that hit these particular qualities in order to be considered a game. Uh, and this, this is not that. So his support really showed me that there is, there is a place for me, there is space for me and, and for my work in the game design community. And I feel eternally grateful for him to him for providing that. I've always wondered that question myself. There's so many different definitions of what is a game. Uh, I think that there's a lot of flexibility in that answer. Kind of consider it very similar to like, what is art? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think if we're going to, we should define things to the extent that they serve us to define them. 
but we don't have to define everything, partially because it just gets us into sort of semantic fights that aren't necessary, that aren't necessary, but also because it's nice having some mystery and intrigue in the world. I think that's really important that we don't absolutely hone down on everything that we possibly can at all times. My favorite definition of game <laughs> is um, probably infuriating to most, but my favorite definition of game is that a game is a, what a game designer says it is. <laughs> I mean, that's <laughs> right. That's the, the very similar to how you can look at art too, right? Or how yeah. one perceives art is what it is. Like if you perceive it to be art, then it's art. <laughs> yeah. What's wrong with a little tautology once in a while? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, it sounds like you... Uh, enjoy a bit of philosophy and you have a company called I can't go on or go on. Um, and that's spelled I K A N T K O A N. So what is this company? What is it all about? Yeah, it is. Um, the company name is, is it like definitely a joke? It's a deep cut philosophy pun about rationality of Immanuel Kant and the irrationality and mystery of, um, Japanese and Chinese koans. Uh, so I apologize sometimes for that. And other times I delight in it and that's enough. But the company is basically founded on this idea that we have a lot of really complex systems in the world. And so often we feel really disempowered within those systems or we don't understand them and therefore do not feel that we have agency within them. So can we, through playful experiences of various kinds, make those systems accessible and understandable and playful and help us to feel like we have a chance to, to really impact those systems? So some of the things that, um, that I've explored are climate change and chaos theory and philosophy, um, basically anything that feels really heady or scary, I'm happy to tackle. Would you mind sharing maybe a little bit about one of those games or experiences you've designed? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I have a show running in New York called Chaos Theory, and it is playable theater. So it's a it's a narrative experience that involves games that have to be or players are at least invited to participate in them over the course of the piece. And that is how we progress through the story. So I started looking at uh, I started thinking in 2016 that the world is really chaotic right now, as I think a lot of people felt by the end of that year. Uh, so what is it? what is it going to be? Either we let this feeling of chaos crush us as a society, or we find a way to make it work for us, to make it feel empowering. How do we become agents of change through this chaos? So I started studying chaos theory and interviewing scientists and mathematicians and reading and learning a lot about the underlying structures and systems of chaos theory, which is really founded on the idea that the world, certain elements of the world really feel ununderstandable, but that there are patterns underneath them if we look closely enough. So the whole piece takes these aspects of chaos theory, like strange attractors and the butterfly effect and uh, sensitivity to initial conditions and makes them into social multiplayer games. So it is very funny and very silly uh, right up until it, it isn't anymore because chaos uh, is can be really playful, but it can also be really scary. So the piece really touches on both of those things, and players play a bunch of different games throughout that piece that ultimately help them to look at the feelings of chaos in their own lives through the lens of sort of organized chaos. That sounds really awesome. And what would you say has the audience reception been like, or what have someone, if I were, were to go to Chaos Theory, what would I learn in that experience? 
That's a great question. It's different for everyone. It's a really personal and personalized experience. Um, there, we've gotten some really kind of crazy and wonderful, um, agentic actions that have come out of it. Um, one of the first people who saw the show ended up starting his own company sort of right after that, as a response to the show started, he found a board of directors, uh, and built up this amazing theater within a year and, uh, ended up premiering his own show, which was a, a life goal of his in the same festival that chaos theory was premiered at the following year. Other people have finished art projects that they had left on the shelf for two years, adopted pets, shaved their heads, fallen in love. Um, we've had all kinds of kind of wild and wonderful things happen because the piece really asks people to dig deep into what chaos looks like for them and what kinds of chaos they want to be not pushing away from their lives, but inviting in as a way to change their lives in ways that they, they want to see it changed. So then I kind of wonder what, what I would learn going to the show now. <laughs> yeah, you would learn a little chaos theory for sure. Okay. Uh, you would also learn that I take a lot of creative license in the name of play. And I think for people who know this world really well, there's, um, there's a certain delight in the fact that it is comedy, that it is very, the piece is funny. And a lot of immersive theater right now or playable theater is sort of falls under the guise of, um, of things that are really moody and atmospheric. So the fact that there can be really joyful play in immersive spaces is still not the norm, even though I think there's a lot of space for us to be exploring that. Super awesome. So what are some main ideas or like philosophies you follow as you design for these experiences or design these games? Yeah, I think the main thing is to, to identify what the heart of a game or a theater piece or a combination is, and then not forget it. It's so easy to go astray if something, especially if something goes wrong. I mean, you know how play tests go. If you have a bad play test, it's so easy to want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. But if you have a true north for, I want to stay really true to this one aspect of the piece, or um, I really, I want to explore this one thing that is of such great interest to me that if I lose that, I'm afraid that I will lose the piece. It gets easier to build something around that. So I think that tends to be at the heart of the design process is to not lose the heart of, of why, why I'm making something. What would you say are some challenges in looking at or trying to follow that process? I think some of the challenges for me are that things tend not to be fun on the first go around. Uh, I will, I have been called by dear friends, um, a, a literalist, which is that sometimes I will just really take things at face value, no matter what. And so sometimes finding something that is really playful and allowing myself to break a system open um, feels at first like a violation of staying true to that thing. But actually, it really is just a process of breaking something down so that you can infuse it with play and then make it stronger. So trusting in the process is really hard, especially when you're playtesting something and you're bringing in friends and family and strangers who you really respect and saying, hey, please help me do this really imperfect thing and provide feedback. And it's just an incredibly vulnerable process to fail faster. Uh, and I think that's that is still really hard for me, even though I, I think it's incredibly important and I think is at the heart of, of the process of, of making this kind of work, but it is incredibly scary. Right. I, I completely agree with the idea of failing faster. Um, I do some game design as a hobby, but my main 
job is to teach. And maybe we can kind of talk about some things you've learned through the design process and how that could help with educators designing games for their class. Because uh, one thing that you said is finding the fun. And I think that's important for designing for a classroom game too. We don't want to design a game that's not fun, but we also don't want to lose sight of what we're trying to learn. Do you have any tips for someone designing a game with the intent of the players learning something? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think part of it is that when you're trying to find this balance between learning and fun, (laughs) because they're not always the same thing, uh, leading with fun, there's nothing wrong with that. You can sit in the fun for a really long time and let the learning sneak in or seep in later on in a game. Um, Setting, setting people up so that they are in, in an emotional and cognitive space to learn is so much of the battle. And so sometimes really just creating an environment for learning goes will do your work for you and is a really joyful experience. Um, I think comedy also in game design is under is an underutilized tool. Part of what I learned doing chaos theory is that I have to I have to do two things in order to get the audience on my side. One is that it has to be funny first before I ask them to do anything even remotely scary uh, because they have to be able to laugh because that's literally just going to loosen their muscles up. <laughs> so no one is even going to raise their hand to answer a question unless uh, unless we have had a moment of unity first. And I think the same goes for game design, especially in classrooms with really high strung or stressed out students. And the other thing is modeling behaviors. Um, if I am not willing to to do something or be playful, then no one else is going to do it for sure. So uh, not only that, but I've got to be at like a level 10 if anyone else is going to take it to a level four. And so those are two things that I, I have really tried to to stay true to and to embody as a performer and also as an instructor, even though I tend to be like a pretty mellow and subdued kind of playful, uh, at least me as a human, not necessarily me as a performer. The other thing that I, I think is important is to look at non-ed games as uh, as games for education. There are games like Hellblade and Depression Quest and Undertale that are not necessarily designed with learning first. And yet they explore these really higher level educational experiences about what it is like to experience the world in a different way. Um, and I think those are those are serious games and those are games that can be used in a classroom to open up the door to be talking about complex and nuanced issues. And there's a lot, there are a lot of games out there that already exist and have already found the fun that we as educators can walk in and say, okay, what happens if I layer something onto this? Or we talk about the game first in terms of mechanics and story, and then we start looking at how it might impact and change our lives or what we can learn from it. So this is not necessarily going to work for like all of the STEM learning stuff, but definitely when it comes to higher level needs, emotional learning, all of these things that are really hard, are really hard to learn that it can, they can come in really handy just looking at the things that already exist. I really, I love that answer. I think I, you touched on a few things and I wrote some notes about a couple of them. The fun first is a big thing. I never really thought of it that way, but one I mean, it, one is you, if you're designing a game for your classroom and it's your game that you're kind of creating, looking at what's fun first isn't bad in the design process, right? Because that's that's one thing you need. And then you can 
think about, well, how can we add in any learning objectives or how can we go back to this game that we created and look and learn from it? Yeah, absolutely. I'd say surprise. Yeah, surprise goes a long way too. If you can find twists in your game, then it will be more memorable. Twists and embodiment are really big. Um, Anything to sort of catch people off guard opens up a whole new world of thinking. Suddenly people start thinking differently, more actively, because there are these unknowns or like, what is a puzzle? What did I miss? Is there something else to be explored? People get more curious when there is something unexpected going on. And if you have them moving their bodies along with it, then often those things will get tied to the learning process. They're all just little little ways to enhance learning that would hopefully otherwise be occurring anyway. Yeah, that's super awesome. I also, I love how you talked about modeling behavior too. I think that's, I mean, as educators, that's one thing that we're, we're taught to drive home, right? We model the behavior we want to see in our classroom. And if we're bringing a game in, we better be able to model how to play that game and model how to engage in it in a professional, respectful, and fun way. Absolutely. Before we move into the final, we're going to do two final segments this episode. Do you have any last words of advice to either maybe game designers or educators designing for games or I guess maybe game designers designing games for education or games for learning or educators or teachers designing games? I don't know if this is so much words of wisdom because I think this is just something really that I have a, a question about and would love to to converse with with you or with others about in the future is I feel pretty strongly that we are the best educators when we're teaching the things that we're passionate about. And so part of part of what I try and embody and model and also what I ask my students to do is to find passion in things that they're not necessarily passionate about, to really be training that muscle of what it is like to to really love things that, and, and be really willing to learn. Um, but I think something I would like to be following more is really trusting the idea that if I care a lot about something, then we will find ways to relate it to the work, to make it work in the classroom, that I can trust my own sense of fun and play to lead the way a little bit more than I currently do. So I think that's something that I'm, I'm working on and striving towards and trying to figure out the right balance of. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have a, a good answer for that. All I can think to maybe connect it to is knowing the why for doing something. Uh, as far as there's a podcast I listen to, and he always talks about it's Pat Flynn business podcast. He always talks about the why, because in business, you all, you have all these mundane tasks that you have to do. But if you always have, if you don't lose track of what the end goal is, those mundane tasks make it worthwhile. And you kind of find the passion in that process. That's beautiful. Yeah. That reminds me of, um, is it Simon Sinek who has, uh, that Ted talk on people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Ooh, yeah, that's good too. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And yet we still have to teach them practical skills and grounded information. Right. <laughs> yeah. Finding that balance is so tricky. Yeah. All right. So Jessica, let's move into the two final segments today. Uh, as a listener, you know that we've started a new final segment, but I had sent Jessica uh, the first one, which we've done in the past, where you're on a deserted island and you have three board games, which games or other games, which games would you bring? One 
one that I chose was a game called uh, Inhuman Conditions uh, by Tommy Moranges and Corey O'Brien. It is a five-minute RPG, and it is all about figuring out if the... It's a social deduction game about trying to figure out if the people or, or the person across from you that you are interrogating or being interrogated by is a robot or a human. And it is just so, so beautifully designed and so fun. No matter what, whoever is interrogating me is like 100% sure that I'm a robot. So I'm deeply invested in figuring out how to appear human, which I have not yet mastered. Another one that I, I picked was uh, just a book of RPGs. Um, I was thinking maybe sign so I could, because it is all about creating this new language and uh, being in a space where you would need to communicate differently, which felt sort of apropos of being on a desert island. And so I think I would have a, I would have a great time playing a bunch of RPGs with folks on a desert island. That seems like an actual dream. So the third game is also a social deduction game. I think I'm going to be wanting to do a lot of puzzling on this island. Uh, it is called Fall Guy, and it was uh, it is it was not yet out for uh, for purchase, but it will be soon. And it is this game where we as a group have just robbed a bank, and we're back at our headquarters, and uh, we need to pin it on one person. And we have all agreed who that person is, and we all know who this person is through this brilliant game mechanic that I won't spoil. And uh, everyone knows who it is except the person who is the fall guy who is equally sure that they know who it is, but they think it's someone else. So there is this feeling of camaraderie in the game that everyone is in it together except also, you know that you might not be in it with everybody else. I've never seen people be so deeply anxious or stressed out playing a game or have that somehow be so compelling and delightful. Like people were getting up from the table, half convinced that they were the fall guy, like literally sweating and like needing to get some water and putting their head between their knees. It was just such an incredible experience to play this game. So I, I think I would probably not get sick of that anytime soon. I, I really love social deduction games and you made me... Just look up this game. Is it is it an older game? No, it's new. Okay. I, maybe when I Google it, it just comes up. So you'll have to let me know where I can find it so I can check it out. But there's one uh, that's like the Fall Guy 1981. The Fall Guy board game 1981. It's Milton Bradley. So I don't think that's it. <laughs> no, this is my friend JP. He's um, okay. a Philly-based designer. Yeah, the game should be out next year. Oh, okay, cool. Awesome. So I'll have to keep my eyes out. All right, and now we're going to move into our other final segment, and this is new for our season eight, and I will ask you, or I'll make a couple of statements, and you'll give me a thumbs up because you do like it, or a thumbs down because you don't really like it, you don't prefer it. Rapid statements and then just give me a brief reason why thumbs up or thumbs down great so the first one is movies based on games thumbs up because why not <laughs> all right the next one role-playing games uh enthusiastic thumbs up However, I almost never make anything like this. I almost always have people playing as themselves, and I'm very deeply invested in creating uh, game experiences where players get to play as them without adding any layers to that and how that can be like very fun and transformative. Okay, so the next one, I'm not too sure about this one, worker placement games. 
So that would be a game where you put a piece or like a board game piece on the board that gives you like gold, for example. Like Settler, Settlers of Catan, where you're placing your... Um, man, it's been so long since I've played that. What are they called? You put them on the different spaces and you have to roll. If your dice number comes up, you get that like resource. Oh, I've never heard them referred to as worker placement games. That makes me wary. Um, <laughs> yeah, and resource games in general, I tend to be take it or leave it. So thumbs, uh, I would say thumbs southwest. All right. <laughs> so I guess, yeah, we'll, we'll go with resource games. So thumbs southwest. And then the last one, game rules. Mm, oh, so good. Um, thumbs way up because when people don't know, when there are no guidelines for what the expectations are of you in a given moment, it is hard to act at all. And therefore, we feel really panicky and tend to not be our best selves. So human beings tend to love hierarchies. I'm all for messing with that. But some kind of goal or guidance, I think, is really helpful. Awesome. I think you just described me in playing a role-playing game. <laughs> There's too many <laughs> options for me, so I kind of, I don't really talk a lot the few times that I've played. I've played about a dozen times now, and I, I kind of just observe a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So valid. <laughs> All right, Jessica, thank you very much for your time. I know I learned a lot from you, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. If anyone wanted to reach out to you, or would you mind sharing any projects you're currently working on with our audience? Absolutely. Um, I'm on all the social media. You can find me at I Can't Koan, which is I K A N T K O A N. Um, I have a website by the same name. You can check out some of my work there. I have um, an infinite tabletop game that I hand make and ship out called Schrodinger's Cat. And um, I have a piece, a playable theater piece, Chaos Theory, that is running in New York right now, first Thursdays of the month at 7 p.m. at Caveat on the Lower East Side. Um, and that will be running at least through May. And I have a bunch of other projects that are coming up also that I'm super excited about. And there will be much more information to come. So if folks want to join, um, I have a listserv and we'll send things out as, as those appear. Really awesome. Thank you again, Jessica. And hopefully I'll see you at another convention soon. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Again, before you go, if you have been around listening to our podcast for a while, feel free to support us in any way that you see fit. There are several ways you can do that. You can go to boardgamingwitheducation.com backslash support. There are free ways to do so. There are other paid ways to do so. We would love any support that you could give. And until next time. Thank you for listening in this week. If you liked what you heard, be sure to let us know. You can find us on social media as Board Gaming with Education or BGE Games, or email us at podcast at boardgamingwitheducation.com. If you want to support our podcast, be sure to check out our support page on our website. As always, teach better, learn more, and most importantly, play more. Thank you for listening, and until next time. <laughs>